tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Noel, did you ever have to learn Morse code? No. <laughs> God, that was not a very interesting response. Let me make something up. Yeah, totally. When I was in Cub Scouts, I mean, we went on a camping trip into the wilderness, so we had to learn how to communicate by tapping our, our, our trees, right? Tree bark. Yeah, yeah exactly. Hollowed yeah. out logs. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, when I was uh, back in Boy Scouts, one of the things that our troop leaders uh, continually needled me about, they were always like, Ben, you're good at knots. You you can find your way around in the woods, but you uh you gotta learn Morse code, buddy. It's mm-hmm. just it's been too long. You know what I mean? You're 11 now. It's getting real. You gotta learn Morse code. And so eventually, I learned Morse code, passed the test with it, and then promptly forgot it. Yeah, when you turn 11, you get your first big boy bike. And you learn Morse code. <laughs> right, right. And that's for late bloomers, uh, not for early adopters like our super producer, Casey Pegram. Give him a hand, folks. Today's episode is about Morse code, but more importantly, it's about the man himself. That's right. The Morseman. The Morseman. <laughs> not to be confused with some sort of Norseman. No, no, that's a hard M. Yes, yeah. Yeah, the man, the myth, the the Morseman. The Morseman, Samuel Morseman Morse. So Samuel Morse, born April 27th, 1791. Today he is remembered primarily for the code system that bears his name, Morse code. And everyone knows what that is. Casey, can we get just a little clip of how that would sound? There you go, perfect. So like a series of short beeps and then long ones. Yeah, and if you're really good at it, you can do it. Like, you know, I would do it more like dot, dot, 
dash, dot, dot, dash. But if you're really good and you can work one of those little flipper paddle button things, you know, that you uh-huh. see in the old movies, you'd be more like, beep, 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 You know what I mean? Like, that's Morse code. A telegraph. Yeah, telegraph, which he's also credited with. He didn't really invent it exactly, but he improved upon a previous design and made it much more useful in relaying information, more or less, instantaneously. Yeah, that's the thing. So most inventions that we think of as the the huge uh, game-changing innovations, most of those are not going to be made up by one person right. working in isolation. You know what I mean? Multiple people exhibit parallel thinking. It's a phrase you enjoy. Or, you know, the whole idea of standing on the shoulders of giants and all that and improving, piggybacking on something that has come before and making it better, making it suit the times. Yes, that's correct. He He eventually improved, as you said, on this existing telegraph technology, famously sending the first telegraph message on May 24th, 1844. But between his uh, first day on the planet and that moment where he sends the first telegraph message, a lot of stuff happened, and not all of it was particularly pleasant. In fact, we could say that without great personal tragedy, Morse code may not have ever come to be. I know, and that first telegraph message that Morse sent, it's a little heavy, isn't it? It's a, mm. uh, what hath God wrought? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds sinister to me. I like it. It's better than Ahoy Hoy. That's true. <laughs> Ahoy Hoy, which was uh, what famously Mr. Burns sent on the first ever <laughs> telephone call. Right, right. So before Samuel Morse was known for his inventions, way back when Morse was just a regular surname, This guy had a completely different job, didn't he? He did. He went to Yale, um, and when he graduated, what was his degree in, Ben? Did you catch that? Well, he studied several different things. He studied religious philosophy, mathematics, and equestrian science. Which is so interesting because he went into none of those fields upon graduating (laughs) from Yale. He became a quite well-regarded portrait painter. And uh, a piece that he did, I was not aware of this at all, his work is pretty breathtaking. He has one piece called Dying Hercules that has that kind of Caravaggio-esque look of like some of the Italian masters. Like, Real charoscuro lighting, like this dude is heavily ripped, massive pectorals and eight-pack, kind of back in the throes of agony, leaning up against some rocks. It's Hercules um, holding up this kind of like sheet as though it were like a wing. And it's really breathtaking, epic stuff. And he received some note uh, from that work mm-hmm. and um, got some really pretty big-name commissions as a painter. It's interesting because this was a masterpiece early in his life. It's typically called his early masterpiece. And just a side note, he did a sculpture of this first, and he based the painting on that sculpture. I didn't know that. That's pretty weird, right? I I wasn't aware of that um, technique, but I assume it's a common thing because this guy was a big-deal painter. He ended up attracting the attention of notable artists of the time, such as Washington Alston, who wanted him to meet another artist named Benjamin West. And along with Morse's father, Alston arranged for Morse to stay in England for three years to study painting. And eventually, by the end of 1811, he was admitted to the Royal Academy. And this is where he began producing things like dying Hercules. He has some portraits that are in the National Portrait Gallery now, including a self-portrait. Yeah, and I believe he did one of uh, James Madison as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was commissioned to paint a portrait of the Marquis de Lafayette uh, in Washington in February of 1825. Oh, we also did John Adams mm-hmm. and James Monroe. Um, and that was when, unfortunately, tragically, his wife, Lucretia, fell uh, deathly ill. Yes, she fell ill just a month after giving birth to their third child. And she was located in New Haven, Connecticut. And he was in Washington in February of 1825 painting that portrait. So he dropped everything, ran ran back to New Haven as quickly as he could. Unfortunately, he was too late. And his wife passed at the young age of 25 on February 7th, 1825. And at this point, the only way that he could receive notice of this would be through a written correspondence, a letter through the post, or word of mouth, or maybe somebody sending a courier. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And a his, Corvid of some kind. Yes, a Corvid courier. So his father sent him a letter about his wife's illness and Morse did not receive this letter for several days, he wrote to his wife two days after she had died, unaware that she had passed from this earth, and he was talking to her about the election of John Quincy Adams as president, his meeting with Lafayette, and then by the time he returned to New Haven, several days had passed since her burial. What would it have been from Washington, D.C. to New Haven, Connecticut in those days, which would have been by train? How would he have traveled, I wonder? It's an interesting question. So the distance, if you're talking just a straight flight, mm-hmm. the distance would be about— As the Corvette flies. Yeah, 273 miles or 440 kilometers for, you know, the rest of the world. Right. So just for perspective, if someone were traveling on a train today on Amtrak, for instance, how how long would— that journey take? I think only about five and a half hours or so, which kind of threw me because at first I, when I read this, I, I misread and thought that he was much farther away because he had spent a lot of time overseas, but he was in fact not that far, but still just the same. He needed the information instantly. And right. that is what led him to decide he needed to devise a way of doing this so other people wouldn't have to experience what he experienced because he wrote a letter to his daughter after the passing of his wife that was just really heartbreaking uh, Mm -hmm. to, to read. Right. He said, You cannot know the depth of the wound that was inflicted when I was deprived of your dear mother, nor in how many ways that wound has been kept open. And when he learned of her death, he vowed, to find some way to deliver important messages in a timely manner. And he would spend the next two decades perfecting this system. He didn't give up the art uh, right away, but he continued kind of tinkering away at this side hustle uh, at the same time. Um, And it was in 1832 when he was on another uh, voyage, uh, a sea voyage to Europe, or from Europe rather, back to the United States, that he met a very important gentleman uh, for the evolution of what would be his kind of crowning achievement. Yes, Charles Thomas Jackson, a Boston physician and scientist. And Jackson says to Morse, hey, uh, check out this electromagnet I made. He had a rudimentary electromagnet. And Morse was inspired, and Morse thought, you know what? 
I, what if I could send a message along a wire by opening and closing an electrical circuit, and then an electromagnet could record these uh, blips on a piece of paper via some sort of, dare I say, a code? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I like your thinking. Yeah, right. And this is one of those, I don't know, at first it's like a, a cocktail napkin idea. You know, he's he's still what ifing to himself. But when he goes back to the U.S., when he disembarks from the trip, he moves forward with the idea and he meets another guy who works with electromagnets, a fellow named Joseph Henry. Yeah, and uh, Joseph Henry was also working with the idea of electromagnetism, which is just quick and dirty. I'm, I'm no magnet scientist, but it is the idea of passing electric current into a magnet that turns on and off its magnetic abilities, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not a magnet doctor either, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I like that phrase. But uh, yeah, that's that's the basic gist. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. At this time, Morse still doesn't absolutely understand the nuts and bolts of how electromagnetism works. And it is Henry who explains the phenomenon of electromagnetism to Morse. And he also shows him the experimental electromagnets that he has built. And if you look at the electromagnets Morse later goes on to use and the experimental ones that Joseph Henry created, they're obviously the same design. He's, um, well, you don't want to call it plagiarism, but he's riffing. Well, but he did sue, I believe, right? Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Later he did sue and said, hey, that's my idea. You can you can read some of this, by the way, in a fantastic Smithsonian article called How Samuel Morse Got His Big Idea by Joseph Stromberg. And the Smithsonian has written a couple of things about the story of Morse because I don't remember if we've mentioned this on air yet. Joseph Henry would later go on to become the first secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. So they have a little bit of stake in the game here, story-wise. So before he gets sued, Morse and Henry are, are pretty good buds. They're having interesting conversations. Morse goes back to his home, which is now in New York. And in 1837, he creates his first telegraph receiver. Mm-hmm. Which, like I said, is kind of that, that thing you see in some of these old, uh, the old pictures where it's like a button. Yeah, exactly. On a spring. And that opens and closes the circuit to indicate, yeah, when you do the taps. That's right. And that is pretty much what it looked like. And it got sort of streamlined over time. And you can actually see this first ever version, this prototype, today at the American History Museum. And according to Harold Wallace, the curator of the American History Museum, the most interesting aspect of this is that he took an artist canvas stretcher and made it into a telegraph receiver. A canvas stretcher is what you use to to stretch the canvas right. over a frame and affix it. So he was kind of uh, giving props to his old arts roots. Mm-hmm. And to Wallace, this is symbolic of a shift from painter to telegrapher, all in one piece, mm-hmm. one artifact, That's which pretty is cool. somewhat poetic, right? So now he theoretically has a way to record these signals, and he has to figure out how to transmit them, right? Yeah. He builds the receiver first, but he doesn't build a way to transmit it. So was the infrastructure already in place for this? Because, I mean, this is obviously pre-telephone. Right. He had to work with some other people, and this is where his colleagues Leonard Gale and Alfred Vale come into play. Over the next few years, after building this receiver, Morse, still a man on a mission, works to improve this system, and he uses Vale's transmitter key and a code of dots and dashes. This would be what becomes known as Morse code. And initially, people said, okay, it could be potentially useful, but they had a hard time getting investors because of the infrastructure problem that you alluded to earlier. There's not a pre-existing network of miles and miles and miles of wire. You would have to build it to send that signal. And that's something that we see with a lot of technology. One of the things people are talking about today with autonomous vehicles is how do you build a system in which they can exist? That's right. And so in the same way that we're doing small-scale tests of autonomous vehicles uh, in private, in these private companies, and then gradually doing road tests, some of which have spectacularly failed, um, they did that very thing to demonstrate to potential investors that this technology did work using short runs of wires instead of the kind that would have been strung miles and miles apart to make the technology actually useful across long distances. Yeah, that's a part of the story that I found endearing, they turned to Uncle Sam. They asked the U.S. government for some scratch, some cheddar, some sweet, sweet telegraph money just to uh, construct this network, to lay these lines, to make this wire stuff happen. And the way that they convinced the government to fund it was through this sort of science fair approach. They did a live demonstration within the Capitol, and they strung wires up just between different rooms 
You know what it makes me think of? Um, there's a part in the new Red Dead Redemption game where the character you play, the cowboy, uh, I can't remember his name for, for some reason now, Arthur Morgan. Arthur Morgan. Ooh. Great game if you haven't played it. He happens upon a, an inventor uh, who has these remote control boats that are like little battleship kind of things that can like you know shoot missiles. And it's, the whole idea is that he wants to get investors and he um, rounds up rich people that are like walking around in the city that you're in to come and check out him using this wireless technology. And that was sort of a time. It was, it was set at the same time around the late 1800s or mid-1800s. And it was a time of that kind of ingenuity when – people were so far ahead of like what investors were willing to put their money toward you had to really wow them with some kind of display that they they it was unequivocally a thing that was going to work and that was worth their money yeah and so they put some cash behind it they gave morse and co $30,000 to build a 38 mile wire line from baltimore maryland to washington dc and then on May 1st, oh, should we inflation calculate that? What do you think? I, oh, of course. Okay. Whatever we can, we should. I'm going to guess $1 million. So let's say, just for the sake of argument, let's say $1840s. And we said, what was that, $30,000? Mm-hmm. Okay. So $30,000 in the 1840s would be equal to? What did you guess? One million dollars. Dude, you're really close. It's nine hundred and eighty thousand. Damn. Nine hundred eighty thousand four hundred eighty dollars. Awesome. What do I win? A uh, peace of mind. I'll take it. Okay. I need this, it. Yeah. Dude, I mean, I'm sure we have a T-shirt somewhere. A ridiculous history T-shirt. I'm not gonna be one of those guys in the band wearing their own shirt. <laughs> That's embarrassing. I would wear a Casey on the case shirt. Oh, I absolutely would. That's different though. That that represents the good Mister Mister Pegram. Not our own do brand. We, do we talk about this on air? I pitched Casey on uh, getting a T-shirt with just his face on it. <laughs> you were against that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm going to say no to that one. Oh, man. Casey on the sad, sad case. Well, you know what? Hey, how about this, listeners? You, you guys speak up. Let us know. Demand <laughs> it. Demand Casey's face on a T-shirt. Then we'll see if he changes his tune. Oh, we are going to be in deep trouble on that one, huh? So, oh, yeah. So they strung up the line. Yeah. Uh, probably along a similar route as there would have been uh, train travel, I imagine. That would make sense, right? That's a good point. It really gets national attention uh, when the device is used by the Whig Party to telegraph their presidential nomination from Baltimore, Maryland to Washington, D.C. much, much faster than an ordinary courier could have traveled. And people say, holy smokes, building this wire is is a real pain. But once you have the wire up, this is very useful. Yeah, and and it makes me think of those uh, barbed wire telephone networks because all you need is a conductive material. It's nothing special mm-hmm. about it. It just has to travel from point A to point B, and it can transmit those messages. And it's so cool because, I mean, it makes sense, but I, I just wasn't thinking about it in these terms. You know, in my head, the invention of the telegraph was so far removed from the invention of the telephone, but that's how technology works when you're building on the work of others. Antonio uh, Meucci, um, who was an Italian immigrant, started developing what was referred to as the talking telegraph as early mm-hmm. as 1849. Mm-hmm. We see the concurrence or the confluence, rather, of these similar technologies. Oh, and, and then speaking of your parallel thinking, mm-hmm. the Italian gentleman I just mentioned came up with his design 
completely independently of uh, Alexander Graham Bell, who is credited with the invention. So it just goes to show, like, it's totally a thing that happens. It's first to the patent office sometimes. That's the way it works, right? Mm -hmm. So Morse has finally achieved his mission, and almost 20 years later, 19, 20 years later, he has not put his tragedy to rest, but he has made something positive in the world from this terrible personal catastrophe. And that brings us to the question that we have to ask. Would Morse code or would the telegraph have existed without this man on personal mission? The answer is yes. It just wouldn't be Morse code. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. We've been throwing around the phrase Morse code and we said there are dots and dashes. What exactly is Morse code? It, it changed a little over time, right? It did change a little bit over time because, like we said, uh, uh, you know, he had this invention that he had worked with these other inventors to achieve, uh, including Alfred Vail, who invented his con contribution to the device, which was the telegraph key, which is literally that little button that we've been talking about that allows you to, like, in enter in the code. Mm -hmm. But Morse himself was credited with coming up with a system of dots, as in a, a short beep, and then a, a long beep, beep, 
versus beep. And with those, it's sort of like a Braille alphabet, but for your ears instead of your fingers, right? Right. And he created this code with some inspiration from earlier attempts to communicate even just line of sight over distance through visual cues, you know, semaphore kind of stuff. Yet a controversy exists. If you look at international Morse code now, we still call it Morse code, uh, you'll see that that fairly easy to grok system, dots and dashes. Or dits and das, as it's referred to yes. uh, in the parlance of Morse coterie. Yes, and I like the phrase coterie. However, many scholars will tell you that Morse code is misnamed, and it should actually be called Veil code. Uh, due, due to the contributions of Alfred Vail, who collaborated with Samuel Morse. So many scholars will say that Vail, as a collaborator, was um, the generative force behind what we call Morse code. However, people who say that Morse invented it himself will point out that Vail, in public and private, never claimed he invented the code. And he credited Samuel Morse with the creation of the code in different private correspondence. So if you want to be a revolutionary academic, you can, you can argue the veil side of it. It's just many people attribute Morse code to Samuel Morse, including Alfred Vail. Yeah, and I actually had the misconception that um, Morse code was sort of the way you would enter in uh, letters alphanumerically, like in a telephone, where, you know, each... However many, you know, A is mm -hmm. one dot, B is two, C is three. But if you think about it, in a whole sentence, if you keyed things in one letter at a time like that, it would take ages to communicate any meaningful information, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a whole other system that makes uh, Morse code um, efficient and able to have high words per minute counts, which is how Morse code transmissions are measured. But I have to say, Ben, uh, even after reading into this stuff, maybe I'm being a little dense here, I still don't fully get like how the code works because if an s is an sos is three dits mm -hmm. uh an o is three das mm -hmm. an s is three dits how, how how does that relate to other letters or is it uh phrase based like uh, maybe you can explain yeah so think of it in terms of units so a dit or dot think of it as one unit almost like music uh -huh. okay and a dash is three units so dot and then a dash is Mm, got it. For lack of a better uh, vocal cue, the space between parts of the same letter would be one unit. So there's one dits space between these dits and these das. And the space between separate letters is three units. So there's a three unit space between every letter that you send out. So in an SOS, you would have that dit, 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 and then a space for the span of three other dits. So people would say, okay, that stopped. That's an S. And then when... Oh, is that why on telegrams they say stop? <laughs> no? I'm sorry, Betty. Keep going. But the, uh, the, the space between words would be seven units. So they're, they're counting not just the dits or the das, but they're counting the absence of those. And they, they can figure out from the spaces between letters or words what a phrase is supposed to be. I see. And also, if I'm looking at this chart of the alphabet and uh, the number system 1 through 10 or 1 through 9 and 0, it, it's a little easier than you might think. A is dit, da. B is da, dit, dit, dit. C is da, dit, da, dit. I like saying da and dit. It's fun. Uh, D is da, dit, dit. E is just one dit. F is dit, dit, da, dit. 
And going back to your question, why is it not a dit for one, dit, dit for two, mm-hmm. dit, dit, dit for three? Right. I feel like a beat's about to drop. But one is actually dit, da, 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 da. Seems long for one. It does. And what we're talking about right now, uh, this this code that we're reading back to you, is what became known as international Morris code. And it was adopted by the international community because it incorporated the uh, Latin alphabet with some extra Latin letters and also Arabic uh, numerals and some punctuation and some other symbols that were not accounted for in Morse's original code. So over time, Morse's basis for Morse code got phased out, and it actually ended up not even being the original Morse code that Morse created that kind of took hold and got adopted by the international community. It was uh, this international Morse code that was developed by Frederick Clemens Gerk, who was a German uh, writer and journalist and uh, also someone that was very interested in telegraphy. And he revised that Morse code to make it make more sense, include more necessary characters Mm -hmm. that could be adopted more widely. Yeah, so 10 years after that first telegraph line opens in 1844, there were over 23,000 miles of line or wire crossing the continent. And it hit a watershed moment as various businesses that required quick, long-distance communication began to use telegraph systems. Railroad companies were one of the first to the plate there. They would use it to communicate between their stations, and these telegraph companies began to pop up everywhere that you could imagine. While this was happening, countries in Europe were developing their own system of Morse code, and the code used in America was called American Morse Code or Railroad Morse and the code used in Europe was called Continental Morse. And so that's when that's when they realized they need to standardize this stuff, as you pointed out, with something that everyone can agree on. And uh, one of the things that brought this need for an international code to public attention was the use of radio communication invented in the 1890s, right? And radio frequencies got longer and longer and longer. It became possible to communicate internationally, and that's when they realize, okay, if we're talking about a global level of communication, we all have to more or less be speaking the same language. That's right. And as technology tends to do, it uh, was subsumed by the next best thing, which became the telephone or the talking telegraph, and then radio communication or wireless, right? Because Mm -hmm. you didn't have to have the infrastructure. It was all just done on radio waves. Yeah. And that was adopted by the military for communicating between, you know, uh, planes and such. And even though, uh, like, for example, amateur radio enthusiasts still use Morse code, it's a little bit more of kind of a quirky holdover from the past. I believe, Ben, you were telling me that the uh, that pilots um, and military personnel um, had to learn Morse code up until, I think, the 90s. Right, yeah. Up until the 1990s, pilots were required to know how to communicate using Morse code. And up until 2007, uh, if you wanted to get an amateur radio license, you had to pass a Morse code proficiency test. But you're right. The average person today is probably not going to communicate in Morse code, and they're probably not going to know it. Most of us wouldn't know Morse code. I mean, I admitted at the beginning of this show that I promptly forgot it after getting whatever merit badge I was uh, I was gunning for. And believe it or not, man, American Morse code, the railroad Morse code is still 
around. It's nearly extinct, but it's still around. And uh, one group of people who are keeping it alive might surprise you. Sure, amateur radio operators. I feel like that's that's an easy one. Civil War reenactors. Say what? Civil War reenactors keep American Morse code alive. Interesting. And one that I hadn't thought about is, uh, or something we haven't even discussed at all, is that you can also transmit Morse code visually through flashes of light. And at sea, mm-hmm. uh, to communicate between ships or for a ship to communicate with shore, they have these lamps that have shutters on them that they can flash codes to, uh, you know, to the shore. So you can actually get messages back to shore by line of sight. And military personnel, POWs, have used Morse code through blinking to communicate uh, the true nature of their situation in propaganda videos. It's got all kinds of uses still, not to mention young lads banging on tree stumps in the forest. Yes, yes, yes. It's a huge industry nowadays. Mm -hmm. And that's our story. Uh, there, There is a point, though, that we should make, and that is that the telegraph system or something like it would have developed without Samuel Morse because so many people were working on something similar. However, his personal mission, uh, his passion to, uh, to save other people from the situation that he himself encountered played a huge role in uh, the timing of Morse code for it to become a thing when it did. It may have taken a little bit longer had one man not been so emotionally and personally driven to pursue this innovation. And you know what? I say thanks because we couldn't have had a podcast if things like Morse code and telegraphs and later radio sure. never existed. I mean, it's certainly like one of the earliest forms of long distance communication uh, that served as the basis for, it's just like the spark of an idea. It's right. like, hey, what if I could communicate an idea or a thought or a message from point A to point B. That's literally what podcasting and broadcasting uh, a media of any kind is. It's all a jumping off from that simple idea. One day we should tell the story of Farnsworth, the inventor of television. You know, he got that idea when he was a 14-year-old farmhand? Mm. Well, story for another day. I like it. And I've got to say, maybe we should go back, re-record this entire episode in Morse code. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) I'll think it over. Uh, Let us know your thoughts on Morse code. Feel free to write to us in Morse code if you wish. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on, I almost said Amazon. I don't know if you can find us on Amazon, but we're definitely on Twitter. This is true. And you can find us collectively and individually on Instagram. I am at Ben Bullen. I am at Embryonic Insider. You can check out our community page on Facebook, The Ridiculous Historians, where you can drop your history memes and hang out with your fellow podcast uh, fans, enthusiasts. And check us out next time when we explore the weird story of how a stray dog uh, caused a war. It's true. In the meantime, thanks to our super producer, Casey Pegram. Uh, Casey, I want to make eye contact with you and apologize for bringing up the Casey face t-shirt again. But now the more I say the phrase, the more I'm feeling it. So I don't know if this puts us on opposite sides of history, but I hope we remain friends. We'll see you ends up on the right side of history. Uh, thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme and is always on the right side of history and the right side of our hearts, along with Gabe, our research associate, uh, and you, Ben. And to you as well, Noel. And you know what? To you, Samuel Morse. Cheerio.
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.